Watermark Golf Media. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one no touching of the hair or face. Of course. And that's it! Now, let's do this! In a world where talk is cheap, someone should be paying you to listen to this podcast. It's the Lip Outs Podcast with your host, golf course architect, author, and former looper for the llama, Nathan Crace. And now, from deep within the recesses of the basement beneath the studio at Watermark Golf Media, the man of the hour, the tower of power, too sweet to be sour, make you say, woo, like Jerry Clower. Ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Crace. This is the Lip House Podcast, and we're honored today to have a friend of mine. You know him from the Golf Channel. You've read his works in Golf Digest for many, many years, and you no doubt saw him during the U.S. Open in 2017 at Aaron Hills, a course that he helped design with Dr. Mike Hertzman and Dana Fry. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the podcast, Ron Witten. Hey, Ron. Nathan, I'd love to say that it's an honor to be here, but to tell you the truth, I'm not a big fan of podcasts. Not a problem. <laughs> so, I'm doing this. Re- I'm doing this reluctantly because we're friends. I, I I am aware of that, and I do appreciate it. And for everyone out there, um, I had to drag Ron kicking and screaming via Skype to the podcast, and so we are uh, we are honored to have you here. We do. I really do appreciate it, though. Well, so, it, it, it it it's there's a couple of a couple of reasons why. One is I'm much more comfortable asking the questions than answering them. Sure, and. I've done a few of these before, and I always come off really pompous and pedantic, and I realize I am both those things, and I just don't like for other people to uh, to realize that. Well, so. if, if you'd like some advice, you'll sound less pompous if you stop using words like pedantic. Okay. <laughs> so. No, we're. Hey, I'm a writer. Remember. <laughs> well, we're going to have fun, and and that is the goal here. We're going to have fun with this. I'm not going to ask you what it takes to be a golf digest panelist. I'm not going to ask you how do you put the rankings together and what's the difference between resistance to scoring and how much walkability. We're we're not going to discuss any of that. We're going to talk about anything you want to talk about. Well, and and I thought since it might be fun as we get into this, you know, we've got 45 minutes or so, give or take. As we get into this, maybe we do. A little role reversal, and you ask me some questions. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to that. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that might be fun. But I did mention earlier in the preview episode of this podcast that originally it was called A Quick Nine. You were kind enough, well, I guess you saw it on Twitter, and you sent me an email, a very lengthy and well-thought-out email, and you said, you're missing the boat if you don't call it Lip Outs. And I thought maybe you could go into a little more detail on that. Well, that was the name of your column that you did for years, and it was it was an excellent column in T Degree, I think, it was tita green magazine yeah it's where it started uh, that's how i yep. first that's how i first met you and uh it seemed to me that that's your brand uh plus it's just a damn good name for a podcast um and, and uh you know i was just serving as your editor 
Nathan, just serving <laughs> as your editor. Well, I do appreciate uh, it. And, and I do tell people now, looking back, I felt like an idiot that I even didn't think of that to begin with. I mean, I should have been the one to think of that. And of course, the original format was, well, we'll ask nine questions and get in and out. And I realized quickly, as you told me in that email, that's nearly impossible to do. Um, our last podcast, episode four with Matt Janella from the Golf Channel, a mutual friend of ours, he you know, had these very compelling stories about growing up and, and hard work and what it took to get to where he is. And you can't just cut that off at 30 or 45 minutes. And so that turned into an hour long podcast. So th- that is the beauty of this format is we can talk as little or as much as, as you would like or about whatever you would like or what you don't want to talk about. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I much prefer just to rant about uh, where I think golf architecture is now and where I think it's headed rather than to recite for the umpteenth time how I got into the golf writing business and, and all that. Sure. No, so I'm... if you'll indulge me. <clears throat> So, absolutely. Um, let's no, that, start with the Longleaf Initiative. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is the this is the program that being promoted by the ASGCA, uh, and it it's meant to uh, I guess uh, grow the game. But frankly, I just don't get it. I think it's misguided. I think, you know, I I just saw a course that uh, Jim Fazier redid uh, Aberdeen down in Florida, where he put in eight sets of tees at the request of the manager and all this, and even he admits they look goofy. I mean, we, we used to talk about how Trent Jones' long, long tees were railroad right. railroad to, or landing strip tees. Now now we're, with this initiative, we're building railroad car tees where they're just lily pads, one after another after another. I, and, and, and for some reason, they, there's an obligation to, to slope and rate all these sets of tees. And I'm going, it doesn't, for beginning golfers, for older golfers, they aren't worried about their handicap. I mean, when I... When I took my daughters when they were young out to play golf, we just teed it up in the fairway. And and we didn't worry about all that stuff. And I just don't understand why this uh, this mania to formalize all these forward sets of tees ad nauseum. There you go. See, I'm 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 already sounding like the grumpy old man that I am. <laughs> right out of the gate. No, and that's I will agree with you in that when my kids were you were young, we would go out to play golf and I would hit a tee shot. And if it was in the fairway, which rarely, but if it was in the fairway, I'd let them tee it up in the fairway next to that ball and they would tee off from that spot. And and it, there was no formality to it. They just wanted to be out there and, and have fun. I think, though, that the, the Longleaf Tee Initiative brings a little structure into an idea. Okay, here's what we're shooting for. And it takes some time to kind of massage that and get it to where it is. And, and as an example, at the refuge in Flowood, Mississippi, that we're renovating right now, we're installing the Longleaf T system, but not to the uh, to the umpteenth degree. And what happened there, I don't think you've ever had the chance to, to see the refuge, but the golf course was in this strange no man's land where it was extremely short from the back tees. It was 6,500 yards from, you know, by today's standards, extremely short, um, but it very tight. So for the better players, they couldn't hit driver on a lot of holes. It was too short and too tight. For the higher handicap players, it was too tight and too many lost balls. And so what we've tried to do there, combination of opening it up and not just adding forward tees, we're also adding back tees. So now when the golf course opens, it'll range from 4,500 yards to 7,045 yards. And you'll be able to hit a driver, if you would like, on every par four and every par five, where in the past, the long hitters, I would go out and play golf and hit driver three or four times in a round. And that's just, you feel handcuffed when you're forced to do that. And and, and that sounds perfectly logical. Uh, uh, my objection, I guess, to the to the whole idea of the, of the long leaf uh, tee initiative is 
is it's just another left brain idea. And, you know, for the last 20 years, I've, I've looked at architecture as a tug of war between left brain dominant and right brain dominant golfers and golf architects. And it's, it's kind of curious because right now all the hot architects, all the big name architects that are getting all the press are all right brain architects. And by that, I mean, they're, they're, they're not, they're not set into this, into a, a format that's, that's conventional. And they, they, you know, they design for, for people to sort of, uh, uh, invent their own game and, and invent their own shots. And it's, it's ironic that most golfers are still left brain golfers. I mean, they, they learn by, by rote, they learn uh, by practice. They, they love to drills and tips. That's why golf digest has been so successful with all these tips, every issue and everything. And, and they, they want the latest equipment. They want, you know, they, they go out on a core Crenshaw design course and they still using their yardage, uh, uh, monitor to try and figure out the exact yardage to a pin when core and Crenshaw want you to hit it 20 yards short. And that's what I find really ironic because the game in architecture, the the push right now is towards really, really right-brained golf courses. And yet most golfers want to, you know, tee it up and keep it in the air as long as they can. And they want the the latest equipment and they want all this stuff. uh, And they still play left brain. The T initiative to me is, is, is the left brain sort of thing. We have to organize these tea boxes we have to we have to you know build them um as you would build in, in irrigating as any teas and um and then we got to slope and rate them so that if you play up there you can still get your usj handicap and i'm going the people are going to play up there i don't really think they're worried about their handicap but i i, I i've never said anything in print i've never you know I'm, I'm not trying to go after anybody it just it's one of those things where I'm a right brainer, so I just look at these things and kind of shake my head. No, I, I think it's good to have a discussion on topics like this. And, and for me, for example, at the refuge, the Longleaf Tea Initiative for me was an opportunity to kind of right some wrongs in a uh, previously quirky design where we could build some forward teas where juniors, beginners, uh, elderly players, perhaps players that had some type of physical disability where they couldn't get up and down the side of some of the taller tees, and uh, they would be able to play and not be, have forced carries over water at the refuge. Well, there was. There's less now. But the forward tees enabled us to kind of work them around those areas and, and open it up because there had been an increase in juniors coming out there playing. On the first five holes years ago, uh, we went and put in the U.S. kids' plaques. You've seen those. They stick them out in the fairway, and the kids go tee off yep. from, from that location. And, and they made scorecards to go along with that little kids' course, and it worked out great. And so what we're doing is kind of taking that and giving it just a little more formal look so when these kids walk up and they can actually walk up on a tee, will we rate them? I- I don't know. But the other aspect of it that I like is when you look at that scorecard and you have the little triangles and you can go play the blue tee on the first two holes and then maybe you play the black tee on the next hole and then the blue tee on the next hole and the black tee on the next two holes. And so you have this different golf course. You could literally play a different golf course every day. I like that aspect of it as well, especially for people who play the same golf course a lot. And uh, this golf course gets a lot of public play. It's going to be next door to a brand new, just an, an awesome $50 million Sheraton Hotel and Conference Center. So there'll be a lot of uh, resort type play there as well. And for me, it's just another option. It's not, I never saw it as a structured 
it has to be like this. It's going to be like this. In fact, one of my one of the first concerns that I had about it was we're going to have to have another set of T markers that they have to move when they mow every morning. Yeah, I I I, I don't object to to adding forward tees on a golf course because I think uh, too many courses are built too long for for average high handicappers or pe- people my age and older and 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 especially uh, uh, beginners and women. My objection is really just the silly point of eight sets of tees or six sets of tees. I mean, build three sets of tees if you want to put two markers on one set or two markers on two right. of the sets and have sure. a back set of tees. Uh, you know, to me that that's all you need. Uh, it, it it it's it just seems to be uh, stretching the point to have so many multiple sets of tees. Does it really mean that it make a difference if you're you know? Uh, at Aaron Hills, we, our forward tee, our, our regular tees are 90 yards ahead of the back tees. Um, if you fill that 90 yards with four more sets of tees or three more sets of tees, would that many people use them? No, no. You have 27 tees on every hole. Yeah, most most people most golfers play from the white tees or the regular tees, and and you know the the back tees are rarely used, and the forward tees don't get used enough. They right. You know, I'm, I'm certainly, uh, when I, after I turned 65, um, uh, I graciously, uh, moved up a set of tees and said, I'm a senior, I'm playing from here. And, uh, I've had a lot more fun ever since I wouldn't move up three, three sets of tees. Right. You know, there's still the, the, there's still that, uh, that pride in me that, uh, you know, as sure. Alice Dice says, nobody ever wants to play from the forward set of tees. She said, if we'd call the front t- set of tees, the tips instead of the back, and today, let's play from the tips. Uh, you know, the, the the macho males of the world. We'd say, "Sure, I played from the tips today." And yeah. you know, too, and it's funny so. you mentioned that because one one thing, uh, one one part of the Longleaf Tea Initiative is where they flip the colors. I mean, they put the red tea in the back and the purple or black or whatever it ends up being because they have so many sets of teas up in the front at the refuge. We've already already decided we're not going even have any color like the uh, logo for the golf course is a duck so each set of tees will be named after a different type of duck that's indigenous to mississippi so there's no color no gender involved and again trying to encourage people to play from the set of tees where they're going to have the most fun not just because they think they need to be playing from there and that's that's important see i i I like the idea that arthur little presented to the asg several years ago and that was you color code the tees with flags on the driving range. And if you're hitting close to the white flags with your driver, you're going to go over and find the white tees. And if you hit the, the red flags, you, to, you, you should be looking out, searching out those red tees because those are the ones you should be playing for a person of your distance. And it fe- seemed, it, it made a lot of sense to me and it seems very logical, but, but, uh, you're right. They're, they're traditionally red sets of tees where the forward tees quote, the women's tees as they used to be called. Right. And no man wants to be caught dead playing the red set of tees you know you, how do you how do you steer golfers to the correct set of tees golf digest did this survey back when they had that 2008 u.s open at terry pines the year before that i think it was or maybe two years before they went out and they measured drives of of just regular players at, at Torrey pines for several days asking people what they thought they did what they thought they they drove the ball you know they didn't say how oh, far you think that is People say, "Oh, it's two twenty or something." It was one eighty. Uh, it was you know, everybody. Everybody overestimated by, I don't know, twenty five percent how far they hit the ball. That doesn't surprise. That, that to me, it's yeah. That's always been the battle is is trying to design a course that 
that accommodates the average golfers where they don't feel overwhelmed. And yet, you know, too many of these, I can't, I can't tell you how many people I've seen, you know, going back to the back blacks at Aaron Hills, wanting to play it from there. And I, I just, that's just crazy. They can't even reach the fairways. Really, that kind of harkens back to one of my lip outs columns that I wrote called 8,000 Yards with a Bullet. And that's been, oh, wow, uh, 15 years ago or so now. But it was the point of that was that so many people show up to a golf course they've never played. They flip over the back of the scorecard and they look to see if it's more than 7,000 yards from the tips, whether they need to be playing from there or not. But to that end, I will say if I go play a golf course um, with some friends, and it's a course I've never played before, and, and maybe I won't get a chance to go back. The Ocean Course at Kiowa was an example. Back in college, uh, a buddy of mine, we drove out there for Easter break and played a lot of golf and, and got on the Ocean Course. And we said, you know, we may never get a chance to play here again. So we played it all the way back, and, and it rained for 13 holes, and the wind was howling the entire time. And, of course, that course was never designed to play the back tees on every hole at the same time. And we had to walk. We had to right. walk back through the scrub and the brush and the dunes to actually find some back tees. And we tried to walk it off. I think it was probably almost eight thousand yards. If you actually, but of course, Pete never designed it to all be played from the back tees in any given day. He wanted it to have that flexibility depending on the wind. And I think maybe some people feel like that. I said, "Well, we're going on this buddy's trip. You know, I'm still a single digit handicap. I want to tee it up from the back in the back." And so some of the other guys go, "Well, I'll." play it from back there with you too and then like you said they get on a golf course like aaron hills for example and they can't even reach the fairway here's my prediction for where golf architecture is headed uh and i think it's going to happen within the next 20 years or so and i say that part because i see the the right brain architecture sort of taking hold and sweeping uh influencing a, a lot of opinions uh but i think the par five is almost obsolete by today's technology and i think we're going to see architects building fewer and fewer par fives. We'll see more, you know, we've already seen more par seventies, um, but you're going to see courses with maybe one par five or maybe even no par fives, par 68. And, uh, you know, it, it, it addresses several different things. It addresses need less land. It addresses, you're going to, you're going to save a certain amount of irrigation and chemicals and all that stuff. But, uh, I don't think, anybody miss will miss them because there are still eagle holes out there for good players. And those are always the drivable bar fours, which are, you know, becoming far more popular architects 20 years ago would do one. Now they're doing two per course or even three per course. Uh, David Kidd did three on, on uh, gamble Sands, three, three short par fours where you can go for the green and, and for, for the average golfer, that's actually better than a par five, that a short par five, because you get they allow them to tee it up, and they can go for their, you know, try to reach the green from the tee and have a thrilling putt for an eagle. Um, and I, I think, I, th I really think it's going to come about. It just, I mean, we built four par fives over 600 yards at Aaron Hills with the idea that. Well, we'll force these guys to hit a three wood. Well, they hit three woods, three hundred yards, and they could reach the the eighteenth hole, which was playing what six hundred and forty yards in two. Yeah. Um, there there is no such thing as a as a three shot hole anymore for for good players with this technology. You, you know, and and uh, I suppose if you if you had a piece of property where you still had a beautiful creek like the thirteenth at Augusta National, and you'd say, man, I that still want to I still want to have a gambling par five there. You know, sure, but you don't find nobody finds 
four opportunities on any piece of land for that sort of stuff. And, and even, even today that the, you know, they've had to buy a, a chunk of land from Augusta country club, Augusta national did, uh, with the intention of lengthening the hole to make it, make it, uh, a reasonable par five in this day and age. Um, I think uh, uh, in the next 20 years, courses are going to get shorter uh, or, or they're going to be, par is going to be smaller and uh, land is more valuable and water's more valuable. So you'll see that the par fives being sacrificed because people say, we don't really need par fives. Well, when I think back to uh, Copper Mill Golf Club that we did back in, uh, the early 2000s, whenever whenever that was, 2002 or three or four somewhere, just north of Baton Rouge. You know, the original idea was we were going to have this par six on the. I remember the hole. that the twelfth <laughs> right. hole, the twelfth hole, eight hundred yard par six, eight hundred and eighty because eight hundred and eighty yards is a half a mile, and the half thought, a mile. The thought yep. was we would there would be a sign on the back tee that said, "From this point, you're one half mile from the green." It was downhill a little bit, as much as you can be in that part of the world. But the owner got cold feet and didn't want to uh, commit to that. So we ended up breaking that up into the 12th and 13th holes. And because of that, I had to redo the routing. And that's how we ended up with the 6, 6, and 6. We had 6 par 3, 6 par 4s, and 6 par 5s, which, uh, as you alluded to in Golf Digest, when it, the course won best uh, public, best affordable public course in, in the country, that was one of the things that contributed to it was the, the fun factor of having three 6 par 3s six par fours and six par fives. Yeah. And, uh, the only thing I think I would, I would say in this day and age is that six par fives, I think are at least four too many. <laughs> um, that's how much the it's, game has changed just that, that yeah. quickly. And when I see these, and again, I, I'm not plugging the lip outs column, but you know, I wrote another column called what's par got to do with it because I was looking at these, golf courses were for the u.s open and the par fours were all over 500 yards and i remember back when i was a kid there used to be a chart in the usga rule book and it said a par three is any hole zero to 250 and a par four is 251 to 470 anything above that for men is a par five and then women have an option of a par six you know that has very stealthily disappeared from the rule book years ago that that's no longer in there because it doesn't matter and the point of my column was who cares at the end of the day when it's all said and done, you walk off the 18th hole, the person who hit the ball the fewest number of times wins. So really, par, it's only relevant or relative to a tournament that you're playing in, so you can kind of keep up with where everybody else is in the course of their round. Yeah, and and, and for the average golfer who didn't have the length to go for a par 5, the second shot on a par 5 was always the most boring shot on the course. You were just advancing the ball, and, and most architects – would not put any sort of challenge for an average golfer in there because they, you know, they architects want to be considered friendly towards high handicappers, not penal towards high handicappers. So it was just, you know, just advancing the ball. And, and I, I truly think that, that more golfers, average golfers get a kick out of teeing it up on a short par four and trying to reach the green than they ever did trying to advance the ball down a par five fairway without a tee. I love it. That's another reason why. Yeah. And I, I, I think the course is the future. You're going to have three or four of those instead of three or four par fives. And, um, that, that's going to add up to a much shorter course on the card. Um, but as you well know, you can, you can design them so that, that, uh, skilled players, really good players are still, can still be challenged by those holes where if they don't make two, they end up taking six. And, um, 
that's another thing I think. I, I think the course of the future, we're going to see smaller greens and bigger surrounds. Um, we're already seeing some of that. You know, I just wrote about uh, uh, Gil Hans's stream song Black, where they did that. Uh, you know, big greens, big bigger surrounds around them, and, and all kinds of wild humps and hollows around the greens, and they turfed it all in the same turf, mini verde, and damned if they don't end up just mowing everything the same height. So all of a sudden, the greens got three times as big as they were. Um, you know, I, I, it, it was fun to play, but I'm sitting there going, boy, as a resort, I'm not sure I want to be following golfers who are three or four putting from 100 feet away, hole after hole after hole, <laughs> which which brings to mind another another of my grumbly grouches, and that's these, these new rules that the USGA just introduced. And the one that gets me is the flagstick rule, where you can putt with the flagstick in. Um I remember in 65 or 66 when they introduced that rule of you can't, you have to take the flag, flag stick out if you're on the green. For I think for a year they had it where you you could putt on the green with the flag stick in unless your putt was inside the the length of the flag stick. But I may be wrong on that. But anyway, um, that when you read back on that, that was meant to speed up play. Right. And and now what we're going to face is we're going to stand in a fairway and we're going to watch a foursome ahead of us. And one guy wants to pin in and the next guy wants to take it out. And the next guy's got a three footer, but he wants to put the pen back in and we're going to just out there. Tick, 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 tick. And hole after hole after hole, this nonsense is going to go on. Oh, I, I think at the, fir- on the first tee, you got to declare the, the group's got to, has to agree pin in or pin out, uh, from the get go. I don't, I, otherwise you are going to have that situation. Never going to happen. <laughs> Never going to happen. Nathan. <laughs> Oh, come on. <laughs> well, oh, um, Nick Faldo yep. made the comment that can you imagine somebody with a downhill three-footer on 18 at the Masters this year? Is he going to leave the pin in or take it out? You know, would, yeah. you, would you leave the pin in in case it gives you an opportunity to keep it from rolling 10 feet by the hole? And, and that rule in the, in, the, in the idiotic rule of two shots, free drop out of a bunker. I shouldn't say free drop. It's, it's, a, it's a drop outside the bunker if you take a two-stroke penalty, seem to me tacit admissions of where architecture is today, or at least course maintenance, uh, in that the USGA and the RNA feel like green speeds are so fast you need a backstop, and bunkers are so deep that people need, you know, relief from them. Um, and that's that's been my observation in the past 10 years or so, that everybody's building bunkers deeper and deeper and deeper. I mean, you go back to Augusta again in, I think it was 63, but it might've been 65. Nicholas, the year, one of those years when he won in the last round was in the black bunker on 16 above the, where the high plateau is on the right. And he putted out of that bunker. It was so shallow. He could putt out of it and he putted out of it because the pin was, was on that little shelf and he didn't want to roll all the way down the front of the green. Well, now that thing's, I don't know, thigh deep. Um, and you know as well as I do. You go around and bunkers have gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. At the same time, we're trying to grow the game and get people interested in embracing it and everything. So I think in the future, we're going to see fewer bunkers and they're going to be shallower. Well, when you. When That's you, another of my predictions. When you finally make it to Mississippi, I know we've talked about it for five years. When you finally make it and we play golf, I will show <laughs> I will show you the uh, 
my concept of a bunker with a sodded face and a semi-flat bottoms. And part of that is is for that. It's for the playability. It's for maintenance. You still get the look, but it's you walk around Augusta National and you look at some of those bunkers, and I just I don't even know how the sand stays up on the face on some of those. Are they seem almost vertical and a lot of I see that on a lot of golf courses, and I, I know there are, are better uh, bunker systems now, like Better Billy Bunker, and it helps to to hold that sand up like that. But for me, that that's I've never been crazy about the big high flashed, and I think maybe that's just the old uh, having been in the golf management part of it for so long. I just look at those high flashed bunker faces, and I think, ugh, first big rain, the whole crew's got to go out there and start slinging sand back up and pushing sand back up and um that's why i like the the sodded faces and the semi-flat bottoms that you can still see up into them you can still see the sand and you get that visual part of it but you don't have this big maintenance nightmare of a, of a wall of sand in front of you yeah you know I, I i'm being hypocritical here because we built some of the nastiest bunkers of all time at Aaron hills um but you know in in our defense our original aspect our original concept of that was to try and prove that mother nature was the best architect and make everything look like mother nature had done it and mother nature does weird or water erosions you know they don't they don't have sure uh, well the proportions that fit a sand rake and and um and and we didn't have that many of them and then the first owner bob lang decided he was going to add a hundred of them uh and he did everyone pattern draft through you know, ad nauseum, the, the one he did before. And, and I do think and the, the I, site I still de- think determines spend, that too. I, I, sure. But what we, 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 uh, and, and I include myself in that we all who are involved either part-time or full-time in building off courses spend far too much money on, on bunkers. And we make bunkers, you know, that, that require constant maintenance. And, um, that's another thing that I think we're going to see or should see in the future is that is that we need to get back to designing courses for ease of maintenance because we cannot continue to escalate the cost of this game. Uh, it's it's gotten uh, it's gotten out of hand, and you know the long term future of the game requires that it be affordable. Absolutely, and I, and I say that as 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 somebody who's a right brainer and, and, you know, right brain architecture, I always point out is, you know, and that's, that's, that's one of my frustrations with a younger generation who, who says like, Oh geez, the, from the, from, from the post-war period until Tom Doak or Bill Cork came along, it was a fast wasteland of, of, you know, nothingness. Well, no, they were building economical post-war courses. They, they were building courses for $250,000 with single row irrigation. No, they didn't build 60-yard wide fairways because they had single-row irrigation. Uh, and, you know, right. people just, they, they presume that everybody had the sort of money to spend that we're being spent today. And it just, it's only been in the last 20-some years that, that uh, you know, the, everything escalated. And, and Golf Digest was, was a culprit in that with our best new awards. We, we you know. Um, yours, yours was one of the affordable courses that actually one that was actually affordable, but an awful lot of those were built for uh, a lot of those winning courses were built for astronomical amounts of money. Um, and it just, it was, it was a lot of special effects and it was a lot of, uh, 
of uh, Earth movement for for dramatic purposes of of being eye catching, and you know, oh, and, and sure. not for strategy or playability or any of that. You know, I um, I started my career here in Mississippi. Of course, I grew up in Indiana, went to school at Mississippi State, and and landed here. It's where my wife is from. So, started my career here, and in the nineties, and it actually the timing was pretty good because casinos were coming in, and the casinos were building golf courses, but the casinos all wanted to go and get the big name architects, the Nicholas's and the Fazio's and, and and that's fine, but it helped to spur some renovation work and some other uh, new courses for private groups uh, elsewhere in the state. And so we did a lot of that. And it was funny to me because, I mean, we were building 18 brand new holes in the mid late nineties for a million and a half dollars. And these weren't goat ranches. I mean, they were nice, fun to play golf courses. And like you said, we were smart about the irrigation. We may have single road out to the fairway, then double road in from there. Uh, we didn't get crazy with it. Occasionally you have a hole where, you know, it have to have maybe triple row in the dog leg because of the way the hole is shaped or something like that. Never got crazy with the bunkers. The greens averaged about 5,500 or 6,000 square feet. And we didn't have 13 tees on every hole, but we were able to, to do that with those cost controls. And it, I always laughed when I would pick up a magazine and somebody would say, well, yeah, we only spent $8 million on this. So we had to cut corners and I would, yeah. and I would just sit back and, and, and be dumbfounded because we were doing some really nice work. We renovated Hattiesburg country club in 1999 for $1.3 million, and that's a phenomenal golf course. It still is to this day. It's still one of my favorite courses in this area to, to go play, and it's because we didn't go waste a bunch of money. We didn't move dirt where it didn't have to be moved, but also Press Maxwell, son of Perry Maxwell, always Press designed that golf course back in the 50s and did a phenomenal job of routing it from you know hill to hill and you know, in those natural pines and, and all that. So we didn't have to move a lot of dirt. And we, we redid all the green complexes. And they wanted to modernize, quote unquote, the golf course. But you don't have to go out and spend that kind of money. And then now I've seen since the economic downturn where we go in uh, and do a lot of bunker renovation projects, as you discussed earlier, where we're taking out sand. You know, I've got a project in Arkansas where we cut the square feet of bunkers by 40%. It has no impact, it, it, no detrimental impact to the playability of the golf course, but they had these huge bunkers and bunkers that never came into play, and it was just a maintenance nightmare. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's not going to get any better. Most courses, the highest cost uh, on their maintenance budget is labor, and an awful lot of courses have an awful lot of hand labor, hand maintenance. Uh, and I'm including all these right brain courses among them. Um, well, you know, I, I've, I've said before that the, you know, all these all these vast acreages of sand that that we're seeing now that's become so popular and they're they are breathtaking uh, to see and they're they're you know they're uh, they're visually um, outstanding. But but something's going to grow there. And so you end That's up right. at Piners, number two, for instance, you end up hand, hand, hand rake or hand plucking and hand spraying everything. Well, uh, there is a reason why uh, golfers planted rough something that could be maintained with mowers. Um, and the rough is, the, you know, especially prim, uh, primary rough, is, it seems to be, uh, you know, a dirty word among some architects these days. And I just don't get it because you're, you're, handcuffing yourself in terms of what you can use for uh, risks and rewards if you don't have at least some light rough in some holes 
Right. The same with trees. You know, everybody's clear cutting trees, and I think those are two elements that 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 will make a comeback, but right now are being ignored or being foolishly uh, uh, abandoned. To that end, you talk about fairways. I'm. I have thoughts on this new, uh, the new width movement. Everybody talking about width, you know, adding width, adding width, making it fun, different angles and different angles. And that sounds great, but if you go out and start doubling the width of all your fairways, well, then you've got to irrigate it, and then you've got to maintain it, and then you've got to mow it, and you've got to fertilize it, and you've got to treat it. To me, adding width is not just widening the fairway. To me, it's the playing corridor. So maybe you have some areas up and down the side of the holes where maybe you do have some encroachment from trees and and areas that you can kind of clean up and clean out. But if we start going around just adding width for the sake of width and doubling fairway widths, and all all of a sudden we're back tripling uh, three and four wide on irrigation well that's an astronomical increase in construction cost yeah I, 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 and the, again the, the the whole idea with you know they keep saying well all the old grand old architects donald ross and, and mckenzie and all those guys did that well they were unirrigated fairways so they were there you know right. you could mow them as as far as you wanted it was just it was just uh, wherever they placed the bunkers and when you look at those old things they did the same way Pete Dye did, and was they offset fairways, and it it start out heading to the right, and then it suddenly swing left, and it go around a bunker and go back to the right. But uh, uh, you know the, the the width of the fairway to me is you can have the same strategies on a thirty five yard fairway as you have on a sixty five yard fairway. You know David Kidd, for instance, at Mammoth Dunes uh, talked about it. You know. He still has spots where a good player wants to drive the ball in order to have that that perfect angle in the green, and there's usually one of those. And that's that's a very left brain sort of sort of uh, proposition. David's a right brain architect who's trying to engage his left brain in terms of setting up strategies, and yet he says, "I make big wide fairways that are perfectly visible from from every tee, so that the average golfer feels encouraged to." to hit the ball and, and swing with confidence. And that, that's right from, from Reese Jones, who was doing 60 yard wide fairways at the peninsula club in North Carolina in 1992. And, and, and he was always about definition. So there isn't that, you know, I mean, everybody has these same ideas. It's just how they, how they translate them in the ground. And, and, and the thing of it is, is, is there's a fine line between having these, generous fairways that seem appealing to an average golfer and and getting what i call driving range golf where you just stand up and you hit it and you don't care where it goes because you know it's going to be in short grass the the thing that i learned from jason day when he played at aaron hills in the u.s open and he missed the cut is he said the fairways there were so wide and they are they are, they are wide they were 40 to 60 yards wide depending on the hole they were wide for a couple of reasons. One was the topography, the slope of that kettle marine stuff. And the other was because we expected wind. There's always wind there and there wasn't any wind. But he said he couldn't focus. He's a left brainer and the left brainer wants to have a, a you know, they want to have a tunnel vision where they focus on their tee shot. He said the things was so vast that he couldn't focus on where to hit the ball. <laughs> um, and I, and if, if that, if Jason Day, one of the best golfers in the world has, the average golfer standing there is just, you know, they're hitting it like they would on a driving range. Right. Um, and I think, I think, I think architecturally, I don't want to ever do a hole where you feel like you're hitting on a driving range. There's gotta be something, um, 
and whether it's the width of the fairway or whether it's a, like you said, encro- in, encroachment of, of hazards at different points in that fairway or something. Um, and, and trust me, uh, uh, David Kidd at Mammoth Dunes did a great job of that, of having, having sand scars that kind of eat into the thing and his fairways weave and tumble and, and flow left and right and right and left and, you know, S shape straight holes, that sort of thing. Um, but that's, that's one of those things where, again, there are right brainers or right brain devotees who want to try to have absolutes. Well, that's the opposite of right brain thinking. That's left brains. Right. You know, left brainers want to be organized and have set rules and standards and all that stuff. Right brainers want to be, uh, inventive and spontaneous and, and unconventional and, uh, um, you know, I, we had, we had hundred yard wide fairways, but we had one that was, you know, 25 yards wide at Aaron Hills. My philosophy always was when, when I was younger and first got in the business and, and I, I always said, I don't want somebody to walk up on a golf course that I designed and immediately say, Oh, this must be a Nathan Grace golf course because A, B, and C. The bunkers look a certain way or this looks a certain So, you know, the site dictates a, a lot of that. And, you know, when you have a site like Aaron Hills, I mean, if you went out there and, and, you know, built a traditional um, style golf course that just had great cut fairways and green, you know, something you'd see from the, the 40s or it just it wouldn't fit on that site. But the um, so many times you see people trying to force these things onto a site. And I think maybe the best part of what we've had in the last 10, 15 years is that people seem to be working more with the site. They're not moving a million yards of dirt like they used to do. And I, and I know the term minimalism gets thrown around a lot even though sometimes they're still moving 300,000 yards of dirt and calling it minimalism. But the golf course architects who are, are fitting these courses into the land and the rolls and the heaves, and then when you stand up on the tee, not only do you get that that aesthetic when you're looking at the hole, but now you're starting to think, okay, what's the best way to play this hole? What's the most fun option? And it it's, might not be the same option from day to day. Yeah, yeah. And it may not be the same option from morning to, to afternoon. It, 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 there are so many factors. You know, I, I've had the luxury of spending time with so many architects over the last, oh gosh, 35 years and, and visiting a lot of projects and seeing a lot of things going on. And, you know, I always, I always joke, nobody sets out to build a bad golf course. I've never thought my, my, jo- my job was to find fault with what they're doing, but rather to find you know, under, try to understand why they did what they did. And and you mentioned it, everything is site driven and it's, it's driven by what sort of clientele you've got and what side of budget you've got and what sort of owner you've got. I mean, you know, there are some owners that would have gone ahead and done that 880 yard or right. 800. Yeah. 80 yard hole. I still think um, we should have, but yeah, it would have, <laughs> I'm not sure it would have won best new, but <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Okay. So yeah. maybe, maybe it's a good thing. But it, you know what I mean? It, and, 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 uh, uh, that's, it, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've said this past and I, I apologize because I was trying not to, to repeat myself in this podcast from anything I've said in past podcasts. But if there's one thing that I've frustrates me today is that architecture has become polarized. Is it, you know, you, you, uh, there are camps out there that uh, that promote a certain vision or a certain ideal. This is it, and everything else is crap, which is nonsense. I mean, the whole to me, the beauty of golf is that 
we get the we get to play all sorts of varieties of courses by all sorts of architects who have all sorts of different thoughts, and the, and they're all to me uh, fascinating. Uh, there are some that I personally wouldn't wouldn't have done if I was doing the course, but that that doesn't mean I I don't appreciate them. And you know I've said it before, I say it again. You don't have to hate Tom Fazio to like Tom Doak or vice versa, and yet you know we've we've somehow because of social media or whatever, or just maybe it's the sign of the times. Uh, no it, doubt. It's become an, it's become an S versus them mentality when it comes to golf design. And, and it's everything old is great. And everything that's, that's new is, is bad. And, um, there's no appreciation for the 1950s. Um, if, if it hadn't been for those guys, you and I wouldn't be in this business today because had they not generated enough enthusiasm for golf that there was a market to have people full-time building golf courses just to satisfy that market, um, none of us would be in, in, involved in design today. Well, and, and not just in golf course architecture, but it's it's really it's short-sighted to look at a different generation and say, well, they shouldn't have done this and, and they should have done it this way when you weren't there then. You didn't know what they were dealing with. You didn't know what they were working with. You know, that was just the thing, the way things were. And everybody was building a golf course this way or they were building it that way. But you're right to today. And I had this conversation with Matt and I've talked about it with other people. There's this divide among golf course architecture uh, fans. And you see it a lot on social media. There's a distinct split between these two cliques. And you saw it during the match. I mean, people were just going to town on social media about the golf course and how fake it was and oh look at all the waterfalls and oh look at all the fake creeks well yeah it was built in the middle of the desert i mean it was built in the middle of at the time nowhere out in the desert and so to say that you can't you can't go out and manufacture a golf course as i've said before one of the one of my favorite pete Dye quotes is that if it was that easy just to go out and find a golf course and not have to you know why would you need a golf course architect Right. Yeah. You know, and the irony of that is, is that, uh, Tom Doak, who's, who's, you know, the, the premier minimalist when he did the course at Texas tech in Lubbock, Texas. And if you've ever been to Lubbock, it is so flat. They, the, the saying is, if you stare hard enough to the West, you'll see the back of your head. Um, <laughs> it, he dug down and piled up just like Fazio did at Shadow Creek. And in fact, when I played the course and I wrote a little review about it, I said, boy, this sure reminded me of Shadow Creek and all these yahoos on <laughs> a website I shall not mention uh, told me what a moron I was until Doke came up and said, well, actually, that was my pe- that was our idea. We just didn't have the budget that Tom had, but we did the same sort of thing. Uh, I, I mentioned that in part because that's the course that Copper Milk beat that year to win Best New Affordable, if you oh, recall. Oh, wow. No, I, 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 I it finished actually, uh... second. The Rawls course in at Texas Tech, fun course to play, and, and it's 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 a surprisingly different course. That's where I give Tom so much credit because he has always been willing to push the envelope more than just about anybody else. He tries different things, you know the the loop, the eighteen hole. I mean that's not a different that, that's not a novel thing, but nobody else was willing to do it for a long time. The reversible eighteen hole course in Michigan, right. Um, and now, now there's a trend to that, and uh, more power to it. 
Well, I do want to get around to one more thing because it, it does involve what we're talking about. But, you know, I ask people to send in questions uh, via Twitter and I'm not going to get in again to the ones about how did you get into it? You know, what do you have to do to be a panelist, that type of thing. But I do have a question here for you. But before we get to that question, I want to tell everybody about our sponsor, HalfPaintGunWillTravel.com. If you haven't been to the website, if you haven't seen the gear that's available there, you need to go check it out. They have these great hats, uh, these real nice heavy metallic ball markers with the Half Paint Gun Will Travel silhouette on it. It's unique. It's unmistakable. You can't get it anywhere else. And now... Starting this year, they've also added a line of t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, those really nice stainless steel uh, travel mugs, all with the logo on it. you got to go check it out. You can only get it online, and you can only get it at HavePaintGunWillTravel.com. Okay, now, I did. I got this question. I want to give this to you because it's from Brandon Horvath, and I don't know if you know Brandon, but he's the uh, turf pathologist at the University of Tennessee. And he had a question about, uh, well, I'll just read it to you. How do you think the understanding by golf course architects of strokes gained and shots to hole out will affect design in the coming years? I have a foggiest clue what he's talking about. <laughs> that must be that must be one of those shot link things that, that they do for the pro <laughs> pro tour that that announcers rely on just to fill airspace, isn't it? That's one of those left brain. Was things. it shots gained to, to hold out? To shots hold out? Yeah, you know, and I and. It, you're right, because I hate to admit it, I have no idea what is, what it means either, but I see it all the time on TV. Um, so I will say for this golf course architect, it will have no impact whatsoever on my, on my designs going forward. Uh, but no, I, uh, Brandon's a great guy. I, w- I, will, I will say to Brad that, that I, I, it's, uh, most architects aren't designing for turf pros because most projects they have, turf pros, turf pros are never going to see. Right. And I was surprised when, when I followed uh, uh, Jack Nicholas and Tom Doak when they were doing Sabonic Golf Club, uh, right next to National Golf Links on yep. Long Island, yep. and this was at the same time we were building Aaron Hills, and and Tom admitted he'd never done a quote championship course where they really thought about hosting a national championship. He'd never ever conceived that. I mean, even uh, you know, uh, uh, Pacific Dunes has hosted a, a what a mid amateur, I think. Um, but it's 65, 6,600 yards from the back tees. He was never, ever concerned about that. And, and he said that's what Jack opened his eyes to, was how a championship player considers strategies from a back tee. Uh, and, and, and as you well know, they're, they're, most, most clubs want, they want a, quote, championship course, but they're thinking in terms of, of club championships or state amateur or something. Right, but they're not going to hold a tour pro, let alone a, a, a major um and that's why part of what happened at aaron hills was was such a a bolt of lightning is that uh, uh we were lucky enough to to be in the right place at the right time with a with the right project um and we did you know we had mike davis out there before we even started building and he he gave us a lot of of uh, suggestions on uh, if this were to host a U.S. Open, what he'd want to see. Um, but I don't think I I I I, I know that Tom Fazio has had people out measuring drives at Augusta National for twenty years, and they've relocated bunkers accordingly and all that. But I don't know that that many tour pros. Maybe Reese Jones because he's been the Open doctor for a long time, and maybe some of the maybe Gil Hans now because he's 
redoing so many of these courses they're going to host uh opens in the future but i don't know that most architects are really studying shot leak figures and trying to figure out well where where you know what what width should i should i make this entrance into the green to challenge a turpro i mean that no, I think totally that and you're right. And, and for all the left brain, right brain talk, you know, now I'm starting to think I might be schizophrenic because there are a lot of issues I'm left brain about, but a lot of issues I'm right brain about and, and on the same golf course. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I design a golf course from the green backward. And I do it that way because, you know, when you play into the, when you play into the hole, you can't just stick a bunker out there you know, at a certain distance from the back tee and not consider where the other players are playing from because, as you alluded to earlier, very small percentage of people are playing from back there or that need to be playing from back there, and it almost needs to be the other way around. And for me, that was born out of being an assistant golf pro for so many years before I became a golf course architect. And I would go play um, with seniors, and I would go play with ladies, and, and these were very good golfers for you know their age or for, for the women um, who physically could not hit the ball as far as a uh, comparably skilled male golfer. And again, this was in the 90s, so we hadn't really had this big equipment revolution just yet. I think the big thing at the time uh, was maybe titanium shafts were starting to be put into drivers, but the um, I was out playing golf with uh, with a group of ladies who were very good golfers and I'd hit a drive and have an eight iron into the hole and they would go up to their tee and they would hit a comparable drive and they were hitting four woods into the same hole. And that's when it kind of dawned on me and I thought, well, that's not really fair. And you know, these, these tees were just kind of stuck out here and, and they called them the ladies tees. And, and so kind of doubling back to where we began the conversation with the Longleaf Tea Initiative. For me, it's not just about how many tees can we put on this hole. It's about where those forward tees are making golf as enjoyable as you can for people from up there so that they can make their way to the green and have a chance at a maybe a birdie every once in a while, but at least have a chance at, a, at making a par. And that's the type of thing that keeps the game growing, not making used to have these lists with the hardest golf courses and there were people who actually wanted to be on the hardest golf course. And that, that baffled me. I, I, I never, I don't want to walk off a golf course and feel um, beat up. And I don't understand the people that, that want, that want to do that. Yeah. Well, um, you know, Pete Dye made his career on building the hardest golf courses. And he liked to say that, uh, if you play from a nice set of tees, it's still playable. And I always said, Pete, you know, I can play from the very forward set of tees, but a 19-foot deep bunker is still a 19-foot deep bunker. <laughs> uh, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the thing that, that somehow gets lost sometimes is, is that you, you're, not gonna, you're not trying to design a course for the average golfer to reach deeper green regulation. The average golfers aren't going to do that. Hell, turf pros don't even do that right. from the tees they play on. And that's why the handicap system exists and all that. And, and I've always thought the old philosophy that, Trent Jones added of hard part, easy birdie was hard, hard, hard. Yeah. Hard par, easy bogey. Right. Um, which, which translates to, uh, you know, a, a, a net, net birdie or net par. You, you, you want to try and give the average golfer some sort of bailout area so that they can try and tack their way down the hole and, and try to get on and get down in two and get their net par. Um, and that's to me, uh, again, um, and that's, there are some architects who've, they were 
really low handicap golfers themselves who felt playability was first and foremost or or balance that with with maintenance and, and you know jeff cornish comes to mind and bill Amick comes to mind and a lot of these guys uh, and and there's nothing at all wrong with that and and to today sort of condemn those courses as being boring which which always i, I find curious because the um to me if a course is boring to a golfer it, it's it's a it's a personal personal sort of feeling and and i i almost feel like some golfers today especially some some of the younger golf course critics expect to have all these special effects and if they don't have all these dramatic vistas and all these excitement and nasty looking bunkers and everything they consider it boring well you can have a you know you can have a, a pretty quote conventional course that's still very intriguing and very uh very sure. thoughtful and and captures your attention so sure uh, i'm sounding I'm, I'm sorry i'm sounding like that grumpy old man no 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 i i, I mean um, I, I agree with but, you and it's it's all so site specific it's so driven by the site um i i <laughs> i laugh because you were talking about the uh people disagreeing i've i tell clients all the time i want to have people within the same club you know, have some people complain about a bunker and other people not complain about it because that gets them thinking if if everybody agreed and i this is not my quote but if everybody agreed that every bunker on a golf course was exactly perfect and in, in where it was and the size that it was then you've done something wrong because you want people you want to force them to think and force them to navigate that hazard and otherwise there's no sense in, in even having it there right right and and, and you, you want to get golfers out of their comfort levels several holes during round you just don't want to do it every hole or at least you know I, tom doka wrote one time something that that i always thought was was very enlightening to me was that he puts out random bunkers because he, he said that um, he may not with random bunkering he, might, he may not challenge the best golfers in the world hole by hole by hole but but he knows for damn sure that if he puts out you know scientifically placed bunkers that are certain distance off the tee hole after hole he's going to challenge only one group of golfers all the way around right and and his feeling is that that the average golfer uh, deserves a little challenge every once in a while. And I feel the same way. I, I feel like there is absolutely nothing wrong with forcing a, a high handicapper once or twice during a round to have to hit a ball up in the air over, over, of ha over a hazard. Um, now, you know, the penalty for failure, if it's a, a water hazard is different than if it's a sand bunker, it's different if it's just a, a hollow with rough in it. But, um, uh, I've never agreed with the philosophy that all 18 greens should be wide open where you can putt the ball all the way around the course. To me, that that's my definition of a boring golf course. Right. I don't like that. Uh, no, I, I agree. And I, I have no doubt, you know, just looking back at the 25 or so years that I've been doing this, that my background, having worked as a, a golf professional and then in the management side and, and operating golf courses and working with superintendents and that type of thing has had a big influence on my philosophy in golf course design, not just from the perspective of how it plays and and the aesthetic but you have to consider the maintenance you have to consider what it costs because if you don't do that then long term that golf course is going to start to suffer down the road and you can't you can't just operate with a blind eye toward that absolutely 
I learned more from the three years I owned and operated a golf course than I ever did uh, at any other time. You know, I realized that everything counts, everything. And, and uh, you know, when you're spending real money that's coming out of your own pocket, it's uh, right, right. You, you don't – you don't just shrug at a, a design factor or a hard to maintain bunker or a um, a bad patch of grass. You're, right. It's uh, it's got to be addressed. It, everything. It's all important. It's all important. Yeah. Well, Ron, we've been here for over an hour now, and I know this is probably oh the, my gosh, this is probably the best podcast you've ever done. I, I don't hesitate to say that because we didn't bore you with questions that you didn't have to, that you didn't want to answer. So nothing like uh, that. I'm not, but I mean, I love, no, you, you, I, I you love this. Me. Go ahead. Oh no, you just, you spared me the agony of having to recite my boring life history, which is not that exciting. Well, uh, I like the stream you know, of so consciousness. I, I enjoyed, uh, yeah, I enjoyed just bitching about things with you. Yeah, well, it was and, fun. And look, I do want to thank you again. It was very kind of you to write the foreword to the novel that I wrote a couple of years ago that I'm still trying to get published. But it was very kind of you, and what you said in that was was very nice. It'll happen. Stephen King, it took him, I don't know how many years, five or six years to get his first book published. Oh, it, um, it's, it's just one of those things, not being in that industry and not knowing anybody you know in that industry to to quote unquote get your foot in the door and you know thankfully that's not my my primary way of of making money uh you know it it'll it'll happen eventually but i do thank you for that and also we've got to get together and play some golf and i know we've well, we've been talking about it oh, for yes. years but we've got we've got to make that happen hopefully we'll have the refuge open this fall i'd love for you to come check it out and see what we did there i think it checks off a lot of your boxes and um i, I think it's going to be a lot of fun fun golf course for players of all abilities to get out and play so ron Witten from golf digest if you don't get golf digest subscribe and print get it online on social media read ron's work anytime you get a chance to or if you get to see him on tv ron thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us on the podcast we really appreciate you being here I I absolutely enjoyed it, Nathan. Thank you. Come back anytime, Ron. Remember, follow Ron on Twitter at Ron Witten GD. You can follow me on Twitter at Lipouts. Follow the podcast on Twitter and like it on Facebook, both at Lipouts Podcast. And as always, all of this information and links to the topics we've discussed will be on the website at lipoutspodcast.com. We can't do this without the support of listeners like you. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about the podcast. And if you don't subscribe, do it now before you forget. For Ron Witten and everyone at Watermark Golf Media, I'm your host, Nathan Crace. And we'll see you back here next time when we tee it up on the Lipouts Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Watermark Golf Media. All rights reserved.